Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week on The Exchange, Christine Kakari speaks with Nabia Iqbal, the producer, songwriter and NTS host from London. Over the past five years, Iqbal released a series of EPs as throwing shade, mining an intriguing left field sound for labels like Ninja Tune and No Pain in Pop. But at the tail end of last year, Iqbal dropped the moniker and released an album under a given name for the first time. It marked the beginning of a new era for an artist who's achieved much more than releasing great records. In this conversation, we hear of Iqbal working as a human rights lawyer in South Africa, her time completing an MPhil in African history, and her ongoing interest in ethnomusicology, which has helped define her long-running show on NTS. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The Exchange with Nabia Iqbal is up next. Zoila space and I believe you're saying it's your first time in Berghain. Yeah. Um, how was that show? How was that space for you? Well it was amazing. I mean I've heard so much about that club from you know all my friends who've been there as partiers or who've been there performing and so I felt like it was a pretty big deal so then to get invited to play there felt good and obviously it was my first time in the club as well so it's a nice first way to experience it all and now I understand what all the fuss is about because it was amazing yeah the sound system is just incredible I think it's the best sound system that I've experienced in a club because it just like puts the music right in your body you know it's so loud but so clear and um also, I was really impressed with the range of non-alcoholic drinks on offer. <laughs> <laughs> well, what so did you go for? That's something that stood out to me. It had did banana you... juice. Oh, that's that's some nasty yeah. business. Oh, you don't like it? <laughs> it's it's not for me. But they have a lot of other fantastic yeah. non-alcoholic. Did you try Club Marta? Yeah, yeah, that's like a given every time I come to Germany. Yeah, yeah. What was your? Because unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it. Like, how? What was your set like? How did you build it? Um, how did you progress through it? What, what was the kind of sensibility of it, I suppose? Mm. Well, it was quite different to every other DJ set that I've ever played. Obviously, you know, being invited to play at a techno club like Berghain and then um, looking at the lineup and seeing like what the sort of direction of the night might be, I was quite excited because it's nice to be invited to play at a place that has that aesthetic because I really do love a lot of techno music and electronic dance music and house and stuff like that but I've never really played a set before where it's like focusing just on you know techno or like that sort of stuff because maybe 
other times they get booked because of like my NTS radio show, which has a more eclectic vibe to it. So for this one, I was just went in hard, I think, like just playing all the tunes that I love listening to. Um, and sometimes in other sets, I'll like drop one or two of them. But at, on Friday, I could just play all of them in a row. And it was really good. Yeah. So I built it. You know, I was doing the opening set from midnight till 2.30. So obviously I started from like a completely empty dance floor. But w one thing that really struck me about Bergheim, which I haven't really seen anywhere else, is that when people come in and even though they're the first people, they just come right to the front and they just start dancing. There's no re there's no hanging around, yeah. really. So that was quite nice. So I started quite chilled, but then I saw that people were really up for it. So then I just was like, all right, let's just start with bangers and keep going. <laughs> Full throttle. Yeah. yeah. Um well, that's a nice little segue, I guess, into your radio show um, that you do for NTS. And I believe you've been doing it for quite a few years now. Yeah, five years. Over five years. Okay. And how did that come about? Because I, I believe it kind of coincided with around the time you started putting out music. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like it's coming up to five years now of doing all of that sort of stuff. And um, just serendipity, really. I mean, I went on NTS radio the first time as a guest on somebody else's show and it just so happened that the station manager was listening at the time and he really liked what I was doing so I went in and I took a bunch of tunes that I discovered whilst I was studying ethnomusicology at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and that whole process really broadened my horizons in terms of listening to music from around the world and appreciating different kinds of sounds so I was sharing some of those tunes on the radio and then I guess you know it's quite niche. No one else was doing it. I think still really no one else is doing it in the same way on the station. So um, they offered me my own show from that. And I was like, cool. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. I was celebrating my 100th show earlier this year. That felt Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I like playing music from all around the world and just sharing different sounds that I come across that I'm enthusiastic about and I hope other people will appreciate as well. Yeah. Um, like when you're exploring all of these different types of sounds and origins of sounds um are there particular things that you're drawn to like is it um, percussion or is it like chord progressions have you picked up any kind of patterns in what appeals to you I think it's hard to say about you know specific patterns of things that appeal to me especially when I'm thinking about all the different musics that um, I enjoy listening to from different parts of the world because there's just so much variety but I think that's what I appreciate about it the most mm -hmm. and not just even listening to the sounds but also um, you know researching where that music comes from what the instruments are made of how they're made um, what's the significance of that type of music to the people like within the cultural context of where it comes from mm -hmm. it's all really you know as a music lover it's just fascinating really because you know here in the west we listen to music because we love it and, you know, we'll go to a gig or we'll go to a club and, and we'll feel those feelings that, that we get from music that we don't get from anything else. But beyond that, I guess there's, you know, that's where it, the beyond that, we don't really, I, th I feel like we listen to music for music's sake mostly. But then when you look at the role of music in other communities from different countries it's interesting to see what music means for them mm. so like music as a healing force like trance inducing like spiritual getting you closer to god or whatever or trying to invoke specific weather for this harvest season things like that and and so then you start thinking about music in a much more 
integrated way mm-hmm. you know that it's much more part of your life all aspects of it yeah yeah I want to delve into your um area of study but I think as like a first like kind of top line question um because I, I often think about this idea particularly in our sort of scenes like within pockets of like um club music culture or dj culture um and this idea of rare music and fetishizing particular sounds and where the border lays rather between genuine appreciation or something a little bit more problematic so i don't know like kind of with your um academic background do you think that i don't know would it be fair to say that there's a responsibility for people to learn more about the music or learn more about the origins of the people who made the music if it's not of their culture? For sure. I think it's really important because, you know, learning about each other leads to greater understanding, which leads to greater acceptance. And that's, for me, that's the most important thing in life, really, you know, just people being chilled and just, you know, realising that um, we're not really that different from each other. And so... There is a fine line. And for me, I guess, you know, coming at this as like a female person of colour, I have an inherently different stance to, let's say, like a white male from Europe who's presenting this music to other people. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it feels like to be a white European male because I'm not one. But um, there's definitely instances where I think, what's that person's line of thought, what they're doing? Or, you know, other things like, well, just one example is that once I played this... um, field recording of these Congolese miners working in a mine uh, in West Africa made by Hugh Tracy who made who is a British ethnomusicologist who made loads of recordings across sub-Saharan Africa from the 50s to the 70s and this was a recording from the 1950s and it was really rare and I've I came across it whilst I was at SOAS and so I played it on my NTS radio show and then I got this message from a listener saying oh that that music you played is actually um, it's actually been used by this other producer in Germany and he's just basically looped it and released it as, as his own music and he sent me the link, he sent me the SoundCloud link and when I listened to it I was like quite shocked, you know, because that honestly it just been lifted. There was no reference, um, you know, or citation of where that music actually came from, who was actually making it and here was a, a dance producer in Germany just releasing it as his own mm as his own track and you know I feel like that's completely wrong so you know obviously there's like a plethora of music to discover once you move beyond what beyond your immediate surroundings but then you know you need to be aware and you need to you need to make sure that you don't cross those lines as you mentioned and I mean it's fun to learn about new musics and new cultures and things like that so why wouldn't you really (laughs) (laughs) um so so I guess it's a follow-on question like just as you were talking I was just flushed into my head this meme that kind of pops up every now and then where it's um like starter pack for uh you know, white male DJs who play rare African records and it's like a screenshot of like a Discogs for sale page. It's like a record that's 10,000 euros or something and like a Hawaiian shirt. Like it's really funny. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that one. I have seen the startup pack memes, but not that one. Yeah. You'll have to send it to me. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Um, But I guess there's also like, you know, when trying to kind of negotiate what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, there's also got to be room for I suppose like cross-cultural exchange as well so I mean I don't know I'm personally curious in kind of trying to 
tease out a little bit more of the nuance around things like that. Um, like, for example, I was reading something on uh, about ethnomusicology and about how things can be transferred both ways and how, you know, for example, Fela Kuti was um, influenced by James Brown, things like that. So it's, I don't know, I just think it's like a really interesting um, kind of muddy ground that we're... It's, it's totally muddy. I mean, once you start looking into it and you start looking also into like, you know, the history of humans in general, you realise that everything's fluid, everything's constantly changing, um, things are being transported from one place to the other and... It's been going on probably since the beginning of human existence, you know, and that ultimately, you know, once you realise that, it makes you think, well, yeah, what this whole, you know, it's hard to claim ownership over something and say like, well, this is mine and it doesn't belong to you and things like that because things are always moving. I mean, it last year or the year before I came to Berlin actually to do a, a lecture about this for Native Instruments and I was talking about you know there's like this new genre called global bass which is every, everyone's using to refer to music like Kuduru or Batida for example from from Lisbon where you've got these African heritage producers blending their traditional sounds with uh, electronic more like European electronic palette and creating a new thing things like that and so that was like the starting point I guess for the talk but then you know I was explaining that for example would you what would you think if I said that Beyonce Beyonce style of music or let's just say American R&B has its roots in actually um, Arabic music from North Africa and and the Middle East and when you say that to someone they'll be like what what are you talking about but actually you know when you when you trace back the histories of musics that have travelled to the Americas and where they came from, you can see how it happened. Because, for example, let's say if we divide North America, you know, North America and South America, up, you can see that this musical styles vary quite a lot. And in North America, a lot of the musical styles are led by harmonies and and melodies and a lot of vocals. Whereas in South America, it's much more percussion driven and much more about drumming and beats. And so when you look at, okay, well, how, how people were moved from from Africa and the East over to the West, you, during the slave trade, the slaves that were being transported from Africa to the North American states, they were coming from further up the continent, the African continent. So their musics that they were bringing with them were more influenced by North American styles or like the Islamic empire. So Quranic recitals, you know, it was very vocal led. And then that's what they took with them over to North America. And then over hundreds of years, whatever that's developed into the music that you have now. But when you listen to, let's say, Beyonce's vocal a cappella and the singing, you can definitely draw similarities between that and someone reciting the Quran or someone singing in Arabic, you know. And then in the same way, slaves from sub-Saharan Africa, where the musical styles are much more about percussive instruments, they were transported over to the Caribbean and South America. And so the, those, you know, musical styles then developed into what we see now in Brazil or um, you know, like mento music from Jamaica, things like that, or Calypso, all these things. So then you realise, okay, well, that's when we think of Calypso music, you think so much of like the Caribbean, yeah. but you don't think of where it came from before that or how it got there. So once you once you start realising those things, you know, it's just like, whoa, okay, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. And then you think about music moving the other way as well, like African diaspora people who've moved over to like 
the Indian subcontinent, the music they create over there is insane. But no one really talks about that because we think more of like people moving east from east to west rather than the other way around. Right, yeah, that's true. But yeah, there's yeah. there's so much to learn about and discover. Yeah. So Where, what was your first um exposure to this area of study like I had no idea about it. I, I mean, growing up, music's had always been my favourite thing, just listening to it all the time, playing it, learning instruments like the piano and guitar and flute. And um, when I applied to go to university, I actually applied to do straight history degree. And um, when I went to SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, the first week they had this induction week and they had like different sort of taster sessions. And so there was this chora player who did a performance and I'd never, it, I mean, I had no idea what it was, this West African harp that this guy was playing and it just blew my mind, honestly. And so I thought, okay, I don't know anything about this, but I need to learn about it. And on that that very experience just made me um, rush over to the music department and speak to the head of the department and say, I haven't applied for your course, but I really want to study it. Please let me on. And then I was speaking so effusively about the Cora and it just so happened that she was also the head of like the West African music. That was her speciality. So obviously in her mind, she must have been thinking, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, she let me on the course and that's how it all started. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what kind of areas did it take you through? Like I imagine there's obviously in elements of um, instructional study in terms of instruments um, and also history but like are there any particular aspects of what you studied that kind of like remained in your um, mind particularly as an artist I would say mm. we had you know things were split up between practical and theoretical uh, work so on the practical side you had to actually play instruments and learn them um, I got really into gamelan, which is Indonesian percussive music, and I learned the Balinese style and the Javanese style, and and I still love listening to gamelan music, definitely. And then my main performance instrument was the sitar, which I'd always wanted to learn, even growing up, but obviously never really got the chance. And then um, at SOAS I took it up, and I still play it. Just learning about North Indian classical music has been really interesting for me because it's such an ancient an ancient tradition and looking at how music is perceived within that world is is so different to how I learned music growing up you know because we learn music growing up and you learn scales and it's like major or minor and like happy sad and just you learn the scales and you just you know like read music off a off a sheet of paper whereas for example even with gamelan but also like in north indian classical music it's a completely oral tradition so there's no notation you just have to learn everything by heart and so when you're not reading notes off a page you've got to feel it more and I feel like it brings you closer and I know this is going to sound really cheesy but even just having to sit on the floor to play the sitar and just being on the ground you can't wear shoes you've got to really respect the instrument um, the way that you have to hold it requires so much effort and stamina in the first place before you even start playing so it just puts your mind and body in a different gear and yeah it just makes you zone out you know to the music and and the and the scales in Indian music which are called ragas they're defined by um they're defined by emo certain emotions times of the day seasons colors and so you know there'll be like a specific raga and you're supposed to play that 
um, maybe like just when the, the description will be like just when the sun is coming up in the morning and everyone's feeling a certain way and uh, it's it's cool you know because I, I'd never really thought of scales in that way before you just kind of learn them to pass the grade exam and then move on to the next one yeah. but yeah it's changed and, um, and what kind of music were you listening to as a kid like in in your family home because you grew up in London yeah is that right whereabouts actually Central London, okay. yeah, which is quite hectic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Londoner, born and bred. And growing up, um, I mean, my parents always encouraged me and my sisters to study music. So we all played different instruments and we all went to music school on a Saturday. Um, but I don't know, my parents weren't especially musical. So there wasn't always, you know how some people talk about like, oh, my parents always used to play this record. Yeah. Like, there was none of that really. It was just whatever was on in the background, sometimes the radio. Yeah. Um, Why yeah. is it that they wanted you and your sisters to learn music, do you think? Um, it wasn't even just music. It was just extracurricular activities in general. Like we did a lot of sport and other things as well. And I think they just wanted to, they just wanted to give us as many opportunities as we could. And, you know, growing up as like, uh, an ethnic minority family in the UK. I think they were very adamant about making us feel like we could do everything that we wanted to do. And and um, so, yeah, I think that's what it was. They just pushed us to do all sorts of things, but I'm glad they pushed on the music. I'll have to ask them why, because neither of them are really musical. So I'll ask them and then I'll be able to answer this question. <laughs> Next you can, you time can write the answer in the comments. Yeah, yeah I'll be like, well, I asked my mom about this. Yeah. Um, well, let's start talking about your music. So you were at university, um, you were studying ethnomusicology. Around what time did you start experimenting with your own productions and your own work? Uh, probably before that, okay. actually. So I mean, I used to, I played the guitar as growing up as a teenager, so I'd just be messing around on that. But then I did my first music production course when I was 18. Um, so just interesting. And I was actually using this program called Cubase that I've actually never used since then. <laughs> but uh, it was, it you know, it gave me my first experience of how actually to use MIDI and how to record sound into a computer and how to arrange it and all those sort of things and that was when I was 18 and then after that you know just messing about I think when I got a Mac then just recording stuff into GarageBand that's definitely how I made my first tracks because that's the easiest way to do it and then whilst I was at uni I was also in this other band like a noise band because okay. I was listening to a lot of noise and drone music at that time Right. and that was quite intense stuff and then yeah, after that, I think during when I was doing my master's degree, that's when I started trying to learn a bit more about DJing and then producing, well, trying to make some music using Ableton and things like that. And then that's how it started. And I just, I was just doing it for fun because I wanted to learn about it. And um, yeah, but then it just grew into a thing. I mean, the DJing side of stuff that I just, me and my, my friends in London, we always used to put on our own parties and that's where I started DJing. So I actually had these parties that my friends used to put on in different laundrettes around the city. <laughs> and then... Um, like while the laundrettes are operational or while uh, well, after not, hours? Yeah, it was after hours, okay. after hours. It was basically a lock-in. And yeah. I think the laundrette owners didn't really understand what was going on because <laughs> <laughs> it probably never happened before. But yeah, that's where I started learning how to DJ and then people always danced a lot when I played so then the guys who put on the parties were like oh yeah you should 
play every time. And that's how that started. And then, yeah, just messing around on, on the computer as well and trying to record different sounds. Yeah. Were you going out a lot in London around this time? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> More <laughs> than it? now. Um, what were your haunts of choice? Well, I started going out when I was about 13, I think. I don't know whether I looked older than my age or whether they just didn't really check ID at that time, but that's when I first started going out. And that I, I lived close to Camden Town in London and growing up as a teenager, I was really into like punk and, um, yeah, like punk and metal music. So obviously it was great to be near Camden, which is where all the gigs happened. So I used to be at Camden Underworld every weekend and then... Um, yeah, Reading Festival when I was 16. That was probably the best weekend I've ever had in my whole life, even now. <laughs> it's so good. What made it so good? Well, it was just the fir my first experience of a music festival. It was um, the day I, the day I went out there. Like It was the day we got our GCSE results. It's always that weekend, even now. And so me and I felt like every person I knew from London had gone to Reading and I just kept bumping into people and we were in a, you know, a massive crew. And it's the first time that I'd experienced that and probably didn't sleep for about four days and remember the lineup was you know all bands that I really liked at the time like Less Than Jake and AFI and um, 100 Reasons and people like that so yeah it was good but yeah that's that's when I started going out but then obviously when, when I reached the age of about 17 or 18 that's when Electro was starting to get quite big in London and then used to go out to nightclubs like um White Heat and After School, that's where everyone used to go. It was like the indie nightclubs, you know. And yeah, that's how it started. And then after that, just getting more into different types of music and going out all the time to gigs or clubs and stuff. So that's, the, you know, that's one of the amazing things about growing up in a city like London because mm -hmm. it's just all there in front of you. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I feel like when I listen to your music, like the kind of progression of it, and we'll, we'll speak about um, specific tracks and about your new album, um, in a little bit, but I feel like I can hear um, like traces of these. It's like kind of impressions, like audio impressions that are there. And I've, I found it really interesting that with your album, when I was listening to it earlier today, I was like, this is somebody who like grew up listening to like The Cure and yeah. like New Order. I, I There was a real kind of sensibility of like a specific part of like British music history, which I thought was really cool. Um, is that something that yeah, you're right about that. Okay. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I, yeah, I'm obsessed with bands like The Cure and Joy Division, New Order. I, I mean, I, I guess I started getting into that older music um, maybe around the age of like 15, 16. Yeah, because, you know, I was listening to like current guitar music at that time, but then you just start, you just start exploring, don't you? Or like you hear interviews with bands that you like at the time and they're referencing other things and so you, that's how you find out about stuff but um yeah totally I mean this on my album my first album is actually the first time I used guitar on a record even though I'd put out like five EPs before that so that was a new experience for me but it felt really good it yeah. felt really natural and um and it feels like I'm going in the right direction yeah. it's like you don't really hear guitar like a lot of guitar slash electronic music these days these days I don't know it's not as well not, not I guess not in the sense of it being identifiable as a guitar like I feel like there's a lot of perhaps a lot of guitar that's used that's like processed and filtered but I believe the first track of your album like it starts off with guitar so yeah. it's like it's really um a specific sound and it kind of carries all the way through yeah. um which is super cool 
But yeah, so you you started putting out records in 2013. Um and the first record was Mystic Places, Lights, like a um, a two-sided record. We're on Ominira Records, yeah, which German is Casamosa's label. Yeah. label. How how did you two connect? I'm assuming it was through NTS or was it through another Yeah, one? it was actually through NTS. I think that's how he first heard about me because he was listening to my radio show. And then he listened I think yeah then he just went on SoundCloud and saw that had some music on there whatever yeah I guess that's how he heard it and he liked it and then he got in touch but you know he's such an elusive person so when he first got in touch with me it was actually under an alias and so (laughs) I um, didn't even know it was him but then like you know after a few email exchanges and then when he told me the label was Omanira and I was like wait a second (laughs) and then I realized it was him and you know he's such a musical inspiration for me so that just felt surreal to have mm. my first record being put out by him and for him to like to be into it that much that he wanted to release it, it was really nice and actually you know I've been hanging out with him in Berlin this weekend because he he came to my Berghain show yeah. and I was so nervous about Aww. that because I was like how could I do a techno DJ set in front of him <laughs> but it was fine and then he played here yesterday so it was and you know it's almost like the five year anniversary of that record coming out so like we get on really well and he's actually one of the best people that I've met in the music industry so far because he's like really down to earth and just knows what he's talking about and he's just such a good person to work with you know was really so that was like a really good first introduction into releasing music yeah sounds like yeah I mean how did things change for you after that first record came out and after kind of being um I guess like vouched for by somebody like with the the status and reputation of Casamoth yeah well I guess that it was really beneficial it was really beneficial for me because I guess you know a lot of um other labels or uh music heads and journalists they they really follow the releases that Kasim Moss has been putting out on Omanira. So when that came out, then I got a lot of, yeah, I got like a lot of good press and then um, also other labels getting in touch about hearing music. And then that's what led to No Pain and Pop, which is a London-based independent label to put out my next two EPs after that. And that again felt good because, you know, that label's released other artists like Night Jewel and Grimes and Forest Swords. So it was nice to be on that roster as well um yeah and I think I put out after Mystic Places the next EP was called 19 Jewels and that came out the following year in 2014 that was like four or five tracks I can't even remember now (laughs) and then the year after Fate Exclusive yeah Yeah. um actually I wanted to ask you about those two particular records because um I was watching this morning two music videos that you put together which I thought were fascinating. So the first one that I watched was Sweet Tooth, which was one of the tracks off the 19 Jewels EP. And I, I, I thought it was really striking because it was like quite like a romantic and kind of sensual sounding and looking song, but it was framing the bodies and features of men. And I, there was like a really interesting kind of like inversion somehow of images that you're used to of women's bodies being... Um, objectified or even just things like comparisons to food and combinations with food I just found it really refreshing somehow yeah that How, was, yeah yeah that was that. definitely the thinking behind that video I mean it was definitely a little bit tongue-in-cheek right but uh <laughs> yeah no on a serious note though I did actually want to create something which just flipped the 
the norms that we're used to. So instead of objectifying a woman's body, I wanted to objectify a man's body. And, you know, and 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 uh, the result was that it actually made people think about it when, when that video came out. And that, you know, around that release, a lot of people were asking me about it because they also picked up on the same thing because it's only when you see it makes you realise that you actually never see it, yeah. you know? Yeah. So um, all of the guys in that video, they're all friends of mine. <laughs> like I wrote them into that messy, messy video <laughs> shoot. But for me, yeah, it, was, it was quite fun to just be pouring like honey and stuff over like hot boys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not um, bad for a day's work. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's like a funny idea and when you watch it, it's quite playful. But at the same time, I think there is, it is making like a serious commentary on um, the type of images that we're subjected to, you know, of women versus men. It's very, very different. And then when you, when you try and like flip it over onto itself, then yeah, it makes you think about it a bit more. Yeah. Um, would you say that you try to have... I don't know, like similar messages in your music as well. Like, is there? I don't really put it into the music as such because, like, the music is sort of its own entity and it's just this creative output of mine. But I'm very conscious of of image. I think in general, you know, now that you know, well, as soon as you start releasing music or you're doing a radio show, or you're doing whatever else, you're like in in the public eye and you've got people looking at you and so you've got to think about well how are you going to how are you going to make yourself look in front of them or what what do you look like when you perform or when you do photo shoots and things like that and that's something yeah that I think about a lot just because you know I don't want I feel depressed that so many females have to like conform you know to this this like cultural aesthetic of how a woman should look and you know, anyone who says like, oh, well, actually, you know, you can't say that about me because it's my own choice. And it's like, yeah, it might be your own choice, but you're still, you're making that choice within a certain framework. And that is the bottom line. So, I mean, just thinking about like, why do we not see photo shoots of like Kim Kardashian wearing a baggy outfit? Do you know what I mean? Like people would actually be quite shocked if they saw that because it's again about like flipping it and then being realised like, oh, actually every time I see her, she's always like almost naked. So it feels weird to see her wearing clothes that aren't like really (laughs) revealing. But that's what it's about, Mm. I think. And so the same the same pressures just don't apply to guys like as a, you know if you're a man and you're making electronic music and you're DJing you don't have to think about what you look like it doesn't matter you don't have to be topless you don't have to be muscly you don't have to be a certain way but then for women like whenever I look at f- females you know especially now with Instagram and things like that like there's so much pressure on on the visual side of things mm-hmm. and image and I don't know I I just want people to realize that you don't have to look a certain way like you don't have to always wear hot pants or like be taking bikini pictures to get more followers and more likes because yeah that happens but it should also you know you should be able to get a solid following from people who are just into what you do and who respect that as well so yeah something I always think about yeah I don't know as like as as a woman of color do you think that kind of like background assessing of situations because because I know for myself as another woman of color like I'm very 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 sensitive to the use of um women's bodies 
or representations of women, but also the use and misrepresentation of the faces and bodies of people of colour, which is something that still happens um, within quite a few parts of electronic music and it and it um, grinds my gears to no end. Yeah. Um, I mean, how is it for you being an artist who, you know, to some degree it is necessary for you to be, to represent yourself somehow or to be portrayed somehow, like... How does that work for you? And I guess especially with your um, academic background as well, like how how does all of this intersect? (laughs) It's so confusing, isn't it? It is, especially because you're trying to figure it all out as you go along. But, you know, there's probably like a few, there's a few sort of things which are important to me. One, I just really believe that nobody should be able to tell anybody else how they should look or how they should dress. No matter, like, I, I just feel like it's just crazy, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's such a personal, it's such a personal thing to choose what to wear and what to look like. And it should be up to that person and nobody else should have a say over it. And, you know, it doesn't really, yeah. And like, so it's up to them. I think that's really important. And so clothes are really important because it's your first point of communication before you even open your mouth you're saying something about yourself and then the people looking at you are making a judgment on you just from your appearance. So that's quite a, quite an amazing thing, you know. So it's it's something that's quite interesting to play with as well mm. and always think about outfits on the stage and stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, whenever I do a photo shoot or something, I don't ever want to do get in positions which are, you know, are like suggestive or anything like that and like I'll pick my clothes because of you know according to what I want to wear not to what I think I should look like for a certain audience and yeah I just want people to just it's just about confidence really it's just being confident about yourself and what you look like and just owning it and I think more people need to have that whatever they decide to do so but it's always like a, a, a difficult thing to navigate especially as a female and especially as an ethnic female as well because there's so many preconceptions about who you are and what you should be like and what you should look like you just got it's like a constant battle but it's fine you just got to do it yeah. <laughs> um, may I ask what is your family background actually Pakistani Pakistani yeah. and are you um like first second third generation um well my parents both like grew up in in England from a young age but then yeah we we I was born there yeah. so I guess like first generation of people born yeah and um because I I find it I found it interesting and I don't know if there's any real like um weight behind it of you changed your artist name or rather you um dropped your alias and took on what I'm assuming is your birth name yeah. what was the reasoning behind that yeah, so that that was a pretty big deal for me. So at the end of last year, um, to coincide with the announcement of my debut album, I decided to drop my alias because b- previous to that, I'd always been working under the name Throwing Shade. And then instead, I decided to start using my real name, Nabiha Iqbal. And choosing to do that was really difficult. And the fact that it was difficult took me by surprise because I thought, it's really strange why I'm finding it so hard to just use my own name. Like it shouldn't be that much of a bigger deal. But then it really got me thinking about everything. And to be honest, you know, it was like almost, you know, four years of working as a music artist and then getting to a point where I was like, actually, you know what? I just want to, 
I just want to use my real name and be like, yeah, this is who I am and that's it because uh, there there is something political about that when you have a name that's not um, an English sounding name and when you're not like a white person but you're operate, operating in a predominantly white space, then just, you know, being upfront about your identity and your name is a political thing. Like, it wouldn't be the same if my name was like, Amy or something I don't know you know just the, as an example so but just the whole process of getting to that point which is like like this whole journey of self-realization I guess um took a while it took a while but I'm I, I feel like I did the right thing because when you look at look at the representation of South Asian people in music you know in western the western music industry it's basically nothing like the only people I can think of in pop music would be Zayn Malik and MIA you know like the other two big sort of like brown <laughs> faces that you see but apart from that who else is there it's just not that many and then I you know in the type of music that I make and the type of world in which I work I I am definitely um the exception to the rule and then I just thought you know I want to be able to represent and I want to be able to like well, actually, one of the reasons that got me to that point was that over the last few years since doing music, been re- receiving so many messages of support from people of all, you know, different backgrounds, but especially a lot of people who come from other ethnic backgrounds. And they're all messaging me to say that they find it really inspiring to see me what I'm doing, me doing what I'm doing, etc, etc. And like, until that point, I didn't really realise that perhaps there's a greater responsibility with what I'm doing because you know I was just doing what I love but actually you know when people start looking at you and following you then yeah there is definitely more of a responsibility there so I just wanted to be upfront about it and try and like normalize my name because (laughs) you know yeah it's an Arabic name and if you haven't seen it before or heard it before you might not be able to say it right or you might be scared to pronounce it but you shouldn't be I don't get angry at people who say my name wrong because you can't blame them you just have to correct it and then it's fine. But, you know, it feels good to now see the name up on flyers, like sure. big posters and stuff around London. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should uh, talk about the album in a second. But I'm also wondering, was there any difference in your approach to music um, between Throwing Shade and between Nabiha Iqbal? Like, do you think that that change of identity as an artist had any change on your music as well or this is just all like a natural progression I think it's definitely a progression when you listen to the music on on the album it sounds quite different to let's say the music I was putting out on 19 Jewels um the main reason for that is that there's a lot more like live instrumentation on this album um, but to get to this point, for me, it just feels like a sort of natural trajectory because as an artist, you're constantly changing, I think, or you, you should be trying to challenge yourself or thinking about new ideas or how to do things differently. And for me, working on this album, you know, it was the most intense thing that I've ever done in my life because, I mean, making an album <laughs> is not easy and it's very time consuming. Um to create like a, a large body of work that's got to have some coherence about it or ha- have enough meaning for you to want to do it rather than just doing it for the sake of it. Um, it just basically like took over my life. <laughs> so For how long? Um, about a, 
Well, I was working on it for about two years, but then, you know, the last year and then the last six months were just so intense. Like I was just just in the studio all the time. And then first I was doing a lot of all-nighters, but then I realised that it wasn't so productive because maybe you could do two days like that and two nights and then you'd just crash. So instead... I used to go to the studio at like six in the morning and then work till 11 at night, then go home, sleep, get up, do the same thing. I wasn't talking to anybody. I wasn't thinking about like anything else, like not even eating and stuff. It's just crazy how it just takes, it just consumes you. It made me think of loads of interviews that I've read with other artists, you know, when they talk about writing an album and how they're just like in a little hole, just doing it and it takes over. And and whilst I was in that process, which was actually like this time last year in the summer, I felt it and um, I've never cared so much about anything in my life and I've never worked so hard on anything in my life so it's really really important to me yeah where did you start with the album like what was your first moment of something kind of feeling like it was clicking into place do you remember oh yeah now I remember the first track that came together um, was actually in visions yeah that's that kind of like formed the beginning of the album. So I was working on, you know, I was working on music for a while um, before that and trying out different things. And, um, but then when I, when I made that song, then I felt like, okay, yeah, this is going to be the beginning of something. And um, Ninja Tune were into it as well. And yeah, I, I, naturally I just felt like I'd reached a point where I've put out a number of EPs and now the next, um, the next move to make would be to actually work on something bigger and try and write an album. And yeah, it's weird that you asked me about it because like, no one else has asked me about what was the first song and I had to think for a second. And now when I say it's in Visions, that feels weird to me. But it was that was the first track, yeah. Why, why is it that it feels weird? I don't know, but because I, I guess I'm thinking so much of the album like in terms of its track order now. Sure. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> but yeah, that was the that was the first song I wrote for it. And then yeah, just started going from there. And like part and anybody who makes music will know that, you know, you can't just go in the studio and like switch on your like creativity and just write a banger quickly. So it takes a while and sometimes you might be working for like ten hours and not feeling any of it. But then you get to this point where you suddenly have like some epiphany and you'll get an idea really quickly within half an hour, like sketch out a track. And those are the moments that you've got to wait for. But I feel like you can't really get those moments without those annoying hours of work beforehand where you feel like you're not going anywhere. So it's part it's part of the struggle, isn't it? It's all part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did um, you and Ninja Tune find each other? Ninja, so they put out my EP before the album as well, House of Silk, that was in 2016. And whilst I was making music before that release, you know, just preparing, so after Fate Exclusive, when I was just working on new tracks for the next thing, um, and some, you know, I had some tunes ready and I was sending them out to different labels that had shown interest. And then the Ninja Tune thing was actually like one of my, friends who worked there I remember him saying like oh if you have got any tunes you should just send them over and I remember that when I was emailing so I thought I might as well send them to him but then it was just another weird coincidence basically everything that's happened is just you know just by chance you just a little bit of luck and like the right place right time I don't know it just happened that the head of A&R there was already a fan and he had like all my other EPs already and so then when he heard the music then he got in touch and we met up and spoke about it and then 
turned out they were interested in putting it out and that's how it happened and that for me was again like a very surreal feeling because Ninja Tune has been one of my favorite labels growing up to then be able to release an album on that label it still doesn't really feel real to me you know it's been cool though okay so let's like um hop back to your time uh as a student because I understand that you went to Cambridge, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I did a master's at Cambridge. Okay. Yeah. An MPhil in African history. Okay. Yeah. What, what does that look like? A so, master's in philosophy. Yeah, they call it, it's like a master's, it's called a master's of philosophy degree because it's kind of like between a, a master's and a PhD. So I had to write a 30,000 word dissertation. That's Which, a lot of words. Oh my God, it was just too much. <laughs> and um, I was looking at the political role of the black press during apartheid in South Africa. So, because I, I did, because I, you know, whilst I was at SOAS doing my undergrad, I was studying ethnomusicology and history, and I got really interested in South African history. So I applied to do a master's in it. And at that time, I was probably thinking like, yeah, maybe I'll do a PhD. But then that year made me realise I couldn't do it. It's just too isolating, you know, just like doing a research master's. But it was amazing. And I got to go to South Africa to do research and do interviews with like all these veteran journalists and black consciousness activists and stuff and that felt really amazing. Wow. Yeah. So what what was it about um, South African history that drew you to it first of all? I mean obviously it's had like quite a long um, and very turbulent modern history is that kind of what drew you in initially? Yeah I think um, I think part of it was just having an amazing teacher you know we my lecturer at SOAS um, Wayne Dooling he was He's from Cape Town, South Africa, and and he, I, and I, you know, I'm such a geek anyway. I was just like, oh my god, this is so interesting, like doing loads of extra reading and stuff. And then also another pivotal thing was that that summer after after that year of uni, uh, I actually went on a family holiday to South Africa, and it was the first time I'd ever. Tr- you know, visited a place after having really studied about it in depth. And so then seeing all the places that I'd been reading about and like speaking to people who'd, you know, experienced apartheid and the end of it and speaking to them about like more more of the sort of like contemporary um, political situation there and uh, traveling, like going down a mine in Johannesburg and then going and seeing Robben Island. I don't know, all these, all these, these experiences, they just made me even more fascinated with the country and so, you know, I've actually, uh, I've been back there quite a few times. And then after, because after my MPhil at Cambridge, then I did the law conversion and the bar to become a barrister. And then after I got called to the bar, I went back to South Africa and carried on working in Cape Town with a group of women's rights lawyers oh, wow. for six okay. months. Yeah. And then I was back there for another music project earlier this year as well. So I just love that country. It's so interesting. I mean, it's got a really dark past. Mm. And every time you go back there, this year when I went back, it was the first time in five years that I'd been back. And it you just forget how how much the racial divide still exists. Right. And coming from somewhere like London, which is so diverse mm-hmm. and so multicultural, it's, it's quite a shock to the system. But, um, you know, there's uh, amazing music from South Africa and... Yeah, just interested in it. People always ask me, they think like, they're wondering what's my connection if I'm South African or what it is. But yeah, just really interested in the country. So you're like a registered, like you completed your bar? Yeah, yeah, I completed the bar, yeah. So you're able to practice law, Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, I haven't done it for a while, but um, I mean, 
I'm not thinking about it now. I'm just focusing on the music. And that was obviously a quite a tough decision to make at that time back in 2013, that I was going to just focus on music. My parents were like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> but um, I felt like something, some like higher force was pulling me that way. And it just felt, made me realise that you can't always plan everything in your life. Sure. And maybe like the universe knew that music was really, really my favourite thing ever. And now it's letting me do it. And it feels amazing. Um, do you think there's space for um, music to kind of coexist with things like um, activism or like social justice work, things like that? Um, do you think that there is space for there to be like a mutually beneficial union between these two different things? Because I know, you know, for a lot of people, for a lot of people, the idea of combining music or the arts or something that they find to be an escape with something which has more of a message um to it is can be off-putting for certain people like I don't know what's your what's your view that last point you make that's the interesting thing isn't it because it's like okay well music should be um something soothing or something to allow you to to escape from other things or and then like uh, where how can you join the two how can you join something like music with a really serious issue and is it possible and it's something that I think about a lot especially having worked in human rights law and sometimes just getting this weird moment of being super objective when you're standing in a nightclub and you're looking around you and you're just like what are we all doing here <laughs> um but you know the place I've got to it so far having thought about it is that for me I think music's one of the most important things in the world and the fact that it exists everywhere in all forms and you know for different uses just shows you that and the way that also music has played such an important part of important of an important part of you know historical movements or political movements even just throughout the 20th century shows that there is a power there like the power of music is is huge and it does bring people together and it does give them energy and um motivation and helps them to like get through things or to or to do things that definitely is there and we can try and harness that and I think people will do that even in South Africa you know with the anti-apartheid movement music played such a huge huge part of it um whether it was just like a cappella choirs coming together and singing songs or South African jazz um being played by musicians that had been exiled from the country but you know, just there's there's a lot. There's always going to be examples of it, like protest songs and things like that. But then, um, yeah, I guess you know the opposite. The other, the flip side of that would be like, well, what difference does it really make, or how can you try and? Oh, I can't think of the word, but like you know, just put combine the two together and make it feel like it's working. I also think that you know, if you can create a platform for yourself through whatever medium whether it's music or art or fashion or whatever it is um you can then use that platform for whatever cause you want and so for me personally I feel like what I'm doing is has has a significant you know some significance to it just because I'm as like a Pakistani female doing what I'm doing I feel like no one's really done the same thing before and so Maybe it's trailblazing a little bit or it's going to inspire the younger generation to do the same thing and like hopefully um, create even more diversity in the music scene. Um, so I think that's part of it. Like I feel I feel like I'm doing the right thing maybe and I hope people can 
get take some positivity away from it and then also you know one example that I think about a lot is Harry Styles from One Direction <laughs> because because obviously you know he's such a huge pop star and then he made you know like this announcement about how um SeaWorld is really bad and you shouldn't go there because it's bad to keep killer whales in captivity, blah, blah, blah. And he made that statement, I think, around the same time that the film Blackfish came out, oh, which okay. is all about that. Yeah. But then obviously his demographic, like his his follower base is exactly the demographic of people who would be visiting SeaWorld, you know, teenagers. And so when he made that statement, there was this, um, there was this like uh, repercussion like that's directly linked where the number of people visiting SeaWorld started to drop and and like teenagers online were talking about how we shouldn't go there and they were reading up on the situation and all of that then led to SeaWorld saying okay well we're not going to have any more whales in captivity and we're not going to catch any more and you know they're shutting down the I guess once the all the killer whales that are there now die that that's that'll be the end and that's an amazing achievement you know because people have been campaigning for that for so long and obviously that's all made a difference too but it's funny how when a pop star like Harry Styles says something like that and there's like this immediate reaction to it so yeah so that's just an example of how you can use your space to draw attention to different things yeah um there's a lot of conversation in I'd say particularly I, I think in all branches of music but in electronic music um, particularly about the space for um, activism or the space for uh, combining what is traditionally thought of as hedonism, I suppose, with something that's a little bit more socially minded. Is it something that you wish you saw more of or was more apparent in our scene in particular? Or, I don't know, what, what's your what's your feelings about that? About seeing more activism? In- yeah, yeah, or perhaps more like overt, just moving away from this idea that myth of like plur... Um, peace, love, unity, respect, like we're all coming together to be oh, yeah. as one, which is... That's I, like I, idealistic. Yeah, it, which, which is something that I personally feel may have been a reality for a really short period of time. Yeah. Um, and then this kind of nostalgic view has been held on to, even though it doesn't, it actually doesn't apply yeah. um, to a lot of people who partake in these communities. Yeah. I don't know, what, what, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, I totally see what you're saying and and it is a real issue for sure. I mean, for me, because music is my life and my relationship to music is very personal, so I feel like anybody else who's into music also has that own very personal relationship with this, with this powerful thing and each person will interpret it in their own way and take what they want from it in their own way you know like when you go to a club or you're at a massive festival like Glastonbury and there's like 200,000 people all there watching the same band I think that uh, you know okay the uh, the reason I'm saying this is because last year I was at Glastonbury and then afterwards watching the footage back on TV with my granddad and we were watching Radiohead headlining the Pyramid stage and you know it was like 200,000 people there and they're all watching this one band and they're all singing the words and then my granddad was like he said this he said this sentence he said oh I'm witnessing the power of music and then that really stuck with me because I was like you know that's so true because here's you know, a huge amount of people who don't know each other from all different walks of life, different life experiences, but for some reason they're all here watching the same band, listening to the same music. And 
And that collective experience, I think, is important, whether it's somewhere like that or in a nightclub like Berghain, where you're all there and you're, you might be in your own world feeling the music and dancing away, but there's so many other people there doing the same thing. And I think there's something very... Um, there's something there's something very special and like intangible that you gain from that maybe without even realizing that gives you energy and like helps you I don't know just helps you deal with life for sure on an individual scale but then yeah I mean obviously when people throw around these like big sort of banners saying yeah like peace and love and music this is what music's about and stuff then on a you know as soon as you start moving away from like the individual scale that's when things become more complicated and that's what I've realized a lot you know an example would be like just looking at the way large charities operate and seeing that, you know, actually a lot of what they do isn't good. You know, like the big story that came out recently about Oxfam and like, mm. was it also the UN where, where, where people were just taking advantage of their positions of power in Haiti, mm. like with, you know, when they're trying to help like the most sort of desperate people that exist in our society. And when you hear stories like that, it just makes you feel like, well, what's the point? What's the point of even giving money to those charities? Because I don't know where it's going. And so that along with a few other experiences I've had over the last few years and trying to make sense of it all for myself, like my peace of mind, um, I've got to the conclusion that I think you should just try it as an individual, try and live like the best life you can or try and do things in the way that you see is the best way. Because as soon as you even start moving beyond that and you start considering like the the bigger problems that exist in the world, as an individual, there's nothing that you can do to stop that. There's, you know, when like just even this weekend in Berlin, I, I walked past this Syrian refugee camp in, in Tempelhof Park and it just made me feel so strange because... It was basically like a cage of people and it's just like, well, how do you deal with that? Like, what's going on there? There's a fence dividing us and those people, they've made that arduous journey from Syria to Europe by foot, probably lost a lot of friends and family along the way. And here I am and I'm like, I've just played at Berghain last night and I'm just here chilling. It's just, it's hard to make those two sit with each other and, you know, when you think about it too much. And so then, yeah, I don't know. The way that I try and deal with it now is just try and do things in my own life to help someone or to raise awareness about something with a group of friends or you know try and make a difference that way on a small scale because it all starts on a small scale and maybe that's just the best way of dealing with it. Mm -hmm.